0: The original, historical Olympic Games were held as part of a Zeus-centric religious festival in ancient Greece from around 776 BCE until they were quashed by the Roman Emperor Theodosius I in 393 CE as part of his effort to enforce Christianity on the people living in the Roman Empire at the time. The Olympiad component of the holiday, Olympiad being the term used for the athletic competition, which referred to the city in which it took place, Olympia, that component initially involved foot races and javelin throwing contests, and wrestling matches were added in subsequent events. What we generally think of as ancient Greece was a civilization made up of many polis, which is a root component of words like metropolis, but which essentially just means city-state, an entity sort of like modern-day Singapore, which is a nation, but a nation made up primarily of just one city and its surrounding area of influence. These city-states were continuously fighting amongst themselves, So important to the success of this celebration was a tradition called the Olympic Truce, which meant that the host city-state in which the Games took place would not be attacked for the duration of the Games, and those who were attending, athletes and spectators alike, would be able to travel safely to and from the Games. The wars that were in the midst of being fought did not usually stop completely but they could no longer, but those involved could no longer touch the people and places related to this event. The usual rules of engagement between these oft-warring factions, in other words, were put on hold so that everyone could come together to duke it out on the field of athletic competition instead, each city-state sending their best javelin throwers and wrestlers and runners up against those representing their neighbors In some cases, neighbors who they were in the middle of fighting and would probably return to fighting after the games were completed and everyone was safely back home. The Olympic Games was only one of four main Panhellenic game events. Panhellenic meaning basically all of Greece, as anyone within the extended Greek world, including their many colonies, could participate, as long as they were a Greek citizen and as long as they were a man. The Olympic Games were the oldest of these events, but the Pythian, Nemean, and Isthmian Games, dedicated to Apollo, Zeus and Heracles, and Poseidon, respectively, were also fairly important events on the ancient Greek calendar, each giving the various city states the chance to demonstrate their capabilities and superiority over the others, claiming prestige off the battlefield, but in a fashion that in many ways replicated the reputational gains one might hope to earn. During an actual war. This component of these games was vital, and it seemed to shape what they stood for in the minds of the ancient Greek citizenry and leadership. There were other contests of this kind back then, like the Panathenaic Games, through which athletes could expect to become wealthy if they placed highly within their competition of choice. For the Olympic, Pythian, Nemean, and Isthmian Games, though, the winners took home only garlands, crowns, made out of olive leaves, laurel leaves, wild celery, or pine leaves, depending on the event in question. These crowns made out of common materials represented their victory, and the respect and prestige they brought home to their people, to their city-state. The athletes were often given some kind of social honor when they returned home after a victory, but the event itself wasn't about monetary rewards. It was about skill and respect, and to some degree giving this group of people who were part of the same supernation the chance to come together under a common set of rules and understandings, and to set aside other conflicts for the moment, as they did so. What I'd like to talk about today is the evolution of the Olympics into their modern iteration, and how sports and sport-like competitions are reshaping in the age of the internet and under pandemic-related social distancing conditions you are listening to let's know things i'm colin wright the article i'd like to start with today comes from the washington post and it's entitled from unfazed to unprecedented inside the decision to postpone the olympics the Olympic Games have come pretty far since their ancient roots. The original model expanded over time, growing to include ever more nation-states and kingdoms, but also ever more events like chariot racing and a boxing-slash-wrestling-slash-dirty-tricks combat sport with very few rules called pankration, where combatants would punch and choke and gouge each other's eyes In one case, apparently, the judges had trouble figuring out who won a match because both combatants had died from their injuries, but they eventually determined that the one who had died without first having his eyes gouged out should be the winner. So things got pretty colorful at some of these events. But as I mentioned in the intro, the ancient model for this event was killed by Roman edict in 393 CE when the emperor decreed that pagan rituals and cults would no longer be tolerated though there's some question as to whether the events may have continued until closer to 426 CE, when the emperor's successor had all remaining Greek temples destroyed. In the mid-17th century, the term Olympic was used in association with a few different events and competitions, primarily in Britain and France. Mostly, it would seem, because of the historical antiquity-related association that these cultures had with the concept. For the people in those countries at that period, referencing the Olympics would likely have been a nearly mythological sort of reference, rather than something meant to imply an actual connection to those original games. The games were, after all, last held over a thousand years earlier and on the other side of the continent. This trend continued elsewhere in Europe through the 19th century until eventually, in 1856, a wealthy Greek-Romanian businessman-turned-philanthropist named Evangelos Zappas, inspired by a romantic poem, and that's romantic with a capital R for the artistic period, which was at a popular peak around this time and this part of the world, and which was a period that tended to fixate on an idealized interpretation of the past, with an emphasis on individualism lots of civilized men gazing out dramatically at cresting violent waves, lots of imaginative interpretations of how Western historical forebearers lived their lives, that kind of thing. So Zappas was inspired by a particular poem that fit into that category, which was entitled Dialogue of the Dead, and which contained a proposal to revive the Olympic Games as a sort of celebration of the newly formed... Greek state, which had recently formally been established by the British, French, and Russians under the Treaty of Constantinople, essentially giving it independence formally from the Ottoman Empire for the first time since the mid 15th century, when the Byzantine Empire, of which what's now Greece was a part, was captured by the Ottomans, and the Greek War of Independence led up to this nation formalizing moment. So we had a new Greek state a focus on romantic artwork, a decade or so of conflict leading up to this moment, and a poem that was part of that romantic collection of artwork that essentially went viral and which called for a revival of the Olympic Games as part of the glorious revivification of the Greek state. And then we had a wealthy businessman, one of the wealthiest in all of Europe at the time, who was spending most of his time and resources on philanthropic pursuits and he loved that viral romantic poem. Zappas sent a letter to King Otto of Greece offering to revive the Olympic Games and to pay for all of it himself out of pocket and to provide cash prizes to the winners of each competition category. There were some people within the new Greek government, however, who were hesitant to look backward toward ancient times when the continent in which they existed was at that moment hurling full speed into the future. These future gazers convinced the forces that be within the government to counter with an offer to hold an industrial and agricultural exposition instead. Basically an event where they would show off new technologies and techniques within the world of crops and machines that allowed for the conversion of raw materials into finished products. These types of things were all the rage at the time. This was not an unusual perspective for government entities to hold, as the Industrial Revolution had recently upset everything, spreading outward from Britain to the rest of the world, demonstrating to everyone that they'd better get on board or find themselves far behind their nearby economic rivals. That said, Zappas was keen to make a cultural move, not an economic one. After making his proposal known to the public and receiving a great deal of popular support for it, He eventually managed to convince the government to accept a deal in which the Olympic Games would be held every four years, and they would coincide with an also-funded technology and agricultural exposition, the government thinking the games would be a great way to draw people's attention to what really mattered, while Zappas saw the expositions as a relatively cheap offering to get the government on board with his more culturally relevant plan. The first modern Olympics were held in 1859 and in an Athens city square. Subsequent events were held in the Panathenaic Stadium, a famous local landmark that was used for ancient Panathenaic and Olympic games, and which was built entirely out of marble, which Zappas paid to have refurbished after it was excavated in 1869. These new games expanded in scope over the following decades, Including, first, athletes from more nations, and then, eventually, becoming more organized under the auspices of the newly formed International Olympic Committee, or IOC, in 1894. The IOC was tasked with managing and moderating all aspects of the modern Olympic events, and was funded by Zappas and his cousin, Konstantinos Zappas through a trust that was bequeathed for the purpose of keeping the thing going for as long as possible. The games hit a rough patch after the initial Athens-hosted international event in 1896, though, partly because they attempted to hold the events in different host cities around the world, Paris in 1900 and St. Louis in 1904. But the games themselves were presented as sideshows, operating alongside the Paris Exposition and the Louisiana Purchase Exposition that were the main events in each of these cities at that moment. The Olympics were held alongside expositions just as they had been in Athens, in other words, but the expositions in these international cases took top billing, rather than playing second fiddle to the games. The Olympics returned to Athens in 1906, and the size and popularity of the event increased from there expanding to include Winter Games, Paralympic Games, Youth Games, and other offshoots, each somewhat independent from the others, but all falling under the legal and philosophical umbrella of the larger Olympic Games and the IOC. There have been boycotts of essentially every Olympics since that major launch into international popularity at the beginning of the 20th century, but there have been only three Olympic events that were totally cancelled the 1916, 1940 and 1944 Olympic Games, all of which were cancelled because of the outbreak of world wars: World War I in 1916 and World War II in 1940 and44. Despite all the conflict that's gone on during and after those periods, though, including wars that were global and everything but name the Olympics have continued to take place in host cities around the world, featuring competitors at the top of their game in an ever-increasing number of competitions. Until, that is, the year 2020. The 2020 Olympic Games, which were meant to be held in Tokyo on July 24, 2020, have been postponed, which is something that has never happened to an Olympic Games event before. Of course, these are not normal times. As of the day I'm recording this, the world is still in a sort of lockdown stance, with some regions taking the COVID-19 pandemic more seriously than others, but most of the world limiting or even completely ceasing most forms of international travel, encouraging people to stay home, lest we spread the coronavirus further, faster, stressing our medical systems and causing more deaths. Despite the global alarm about this pandemic, though, It took relative ages for the IOC and Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan, to announce that the games would be delayed, which caused a great deal of confusion for all involved parties, from official brand sponsors to the many athletes who planned to compete. Important to recognize here is that planning any event of sufficient scale can be a substantial, multi-year, completely focused undertaking. Planning the Olympics, though, one of the most well-known, highly attended, highly viewed international events, can take an order of magnitude more effort and resources to make happen. What's more, winning the bid to host the Olympics is generally considered to be an indication of rising status. It means you've got enough credibility, enough resources, and enough positive international reputation points that the IOC is willing to bet their reputation on you and your country's potential as a host. In Japan's case, Abe seemed to have been planning to use this opportunity to show the world that the country has come back stronger than ever from the economic and infrastructural devastation following the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that devastated parts of the country, causing just under 16,000 direct official deaths and completely demolishing some of the impacted regions. At the same time, on the other end of the organizational table, International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach seemed to have been looking forward to the 2020 event as a way to reinforce the brand of the Olympics in the eyes of the world, after an array of issues that have plagued the organization over the past decade ranging from doping scandals in 2014 to Zika virus concerns at the 2016 Summer Games in Rio. As recently as the first week of March 2020, an IOC spokesman said in response to a question about whether or not there might be changes to the schedule for the event due to COVID-19, quote, "...we've made a decision. The decision is the games go ahead." End quote. A great deal changed, over the course of March 2020, though. And on the 24th, Abe announced the postponement of the event, promising more details soon. This came as a relief to many athletic organizations around the world, some of which had already told the IOC, some in private, some through public channels, that they would boycott the games if they were held as planned, rather than putting their athletes at risk of infection by having them participate. As of the day I'm recording this, the IOC has announced that the Olympic Games Tokyo 2020 event will now start on July 23, 2021, and end on August 8 in the same year, though it will apparently retain the Olympic Games Tokyo 2020 moniker, despite the change in year. There are an astounding number of changes that must now be made by everyone involved, and billions upon billions of dollars are at stake. For the advertisers, the planners, the organizations that send athletes, and the overall Japanese economy, which was ramping up for a huge influx of visitors this year, but which will now lack that return on their investment, for the moment at least. This story is just one of a great many sports meets pandemic narratives that are playing out this year, as entertainment entities, large and small, scramble to adjust their offerings to fit the current situation or in some cases, to cancel and or put them on ice, until such a time that audiences, players, and the profits that come with presenting the latter to the former can be safely had once more. Wimbledon, for instance, the world's oldest and most well-known tennis championship tournament, has been canceled for the first time since World War II. This is the first time that this tournament will not take place in peacetime since it began in 1877. The 2020 Masters Tournament, the 84th edition of the famous golf competition that was meant to be held mid-April, has been rescheduled for later in 2020. The organization behind it, aiming for mid-November, though they're hedging a bit even on that later date, the chairman saying that the new dates are, quote, incumbent upon favorable counsel and direction from health officials, end quote. UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship events have been postponed indefinitely reportedly because Disney, the parent company of ESPN, which is the sports network on which the upcoming matches were scheduled to be aired, asked that they not go forward due to the risks involved. The National Hockey League, North America's main professional hockey organization, has suspended the entirety of their 2020 season. The National Football League, that's American football, not global soccer football, is planning to launch their season in September 2020 but those in charge have said that they'll need certain medical assurances before they move forward, including widespread testing for the coronavirus due to all of the unknowns that are still at play. As for global soccer football, the Union of European Football Associations has suspended the Champions League, the Europa League, and the Euro 2020 qualifying playoffs indefinitely, after originally hoping to hold events from late June onward. There's still a chance that closed-door games, played in empty stadiums, could take place, but officials are hesitant to say anything for certain at this point, as is probably prudent. The Euro 2020 itself has been postponed until 2021, as has the summer 2020 Copa America. The Premier League in the UK has been suspended indefinitely, as have all of the other major leagues in Europe, horse racing, mixed martial arts... Upcoming Indianapolis 500, Formula One, and Monaco Grand Prix motor races, boxing, rugby, including the European Champions Cup and Challenge Cup quarterfinals, all postponed, indefinitely, canceled, or in some rare cases, rescheduled for some time in 2021. The oldest professional sports league in the United States and Canada, Major League Baseball, is, as I record this at least, working on a plan that could see them playing as soon as May 2020, aiming for a made-for-streaming version of the season that would have teams playing in empty stadiums, players and officials sequestered in isolated hotels, and all of the games taking place in Arizona within one or just a few stadiums. The goal here seems to be producing a viable season of professional sports while limiting potential exposure for everyone involved. And it may be that if they pull it off, they then provide a template that other leagues and sports could use until pandemic concerns have ceased and people are able to gather in vast shared spaces once more. Professional sports, as they're presented on television, on the internet, and within the context of large events like the Olympics or Wimbledon or the MLB League, are a major business model made up of many smaller business models, most of which revolve around presenting sporting events for consumption. The business models surrounding professional sports are thus similar to other types of entertainment business models. It's just that instead of presenting scripted TV shows, plays, concerts, or other sorts of performer-centric entertainment, they're presenting pro-athletes doing impressive athletic things as the entertainment. Quite a lot of research has been done over the years, that gestures at why sports in particular seem to be so popular, both worldwide and across time. Part of their reliable popularity is related to tribalism. Sports allow us to cheer for our team, jeer at the other team, and feel a reflected sense of victory when our team wins, even when we ourselves have not done anything but watch them. There's also a shared collective emotional element to being at or even just watching such a game from a distance, especially when the game is watched in the company of other people. A sort of mob mentality takes hold, with individuals giving up some of their individuality to participate in what amounts to the energy and momentum of a mob that mob sometimes being very upbeat and positive and at other times becoming violent and borderline sociopathic in its behavior. Whatever the specific nature of the tribes and mobs that we form around such events, though, there's a clear, deep-seated desire to participate in such shared, reverberated, emotional experiences with other human beings. Thus, sporting events of any kind have the potential to provide us with something that can be tricky to find elsewhere, and that value just happens to be attached to events that are themselves often quite impressive, inspiring, and dramatic. Watching athletes who have dedicated their lives to a practice can likewise provide us viewers with beneficial psychological effects, similar to what's sometimes called competence porn, which is a casual term for the pleasure that we can take in seeing things done well with obvious skill. Watching skillful performances of any kind, of any type of activity, can activate the reward mechanisms in our brains that would generally trigger if we ourselves were performing such acts that skillfully. And so the attachment and almost empathy people feel for the athletes on screen or down on the field has a neurological component that is very impactful and very real. It's also, as it turns out, very valuable. The National Football League, the NFL, in the United States alone brought in an estimated $15.5 billion in 2017, while the Big Five European Soccer Football Leagues brought in around £13.8 billion, which is about billion billion in 2019. These revenues are derived from a variety of sources. Tickets to the events, of course, play a role as do the sales of concessions and shirts and jerseys and other consumables and memorabilia at the matches themselves, but broadcast and streaming rights for the games and granting the right to use images of these teams and players and video games and other materials also brings in gobs of money. The aforementioned approach that Major League Baseball is taking then, the plan to play games in the very near future to empty stadiums, and with closed-off players and officials to avoid infection is interesting in that it could represent a pivot away from some old reliable revenue sources to refocus more of their attention on those that are not connected to in-person sales and tickets to the game itself the future of major sporting leagues then could be partially reliant on how well they hedge against future pandemic related issues and other issues that put a stick in the spokes of their usual revenue models Most major sporting organizations and leagues at this point have an array of income sources, but a great many are still monetarily dependent on the in person events and associated revenue from these events in various ways. Others are more diversified, but still use the in person events as the central focal point of their brand building activities. What matters in their league is what happens on the field or court, it's the metaphorical stage upon which their performance takes place. And this type of situation, and potential future situations in which in-person events become impossible or ill-advised, may force them to recalibrate their focus and shift the centrality of their work, their product, to other mediums and other types of event. In the meantime, until such shifts are successfully made, other, often substantially smaller, sporting and sport-like events have moved in to fill in the gaps some intentionally looking to claim market share, and some almost whimsically, accidentally, found by listless sport fans with nothing new to watch, and then shared with friends who share them with friends, and so on. Chess tag, for instance, which is exactly what it sounds like, and marble racing, also exactly what it sounds like, have become recent fan favorites, due in part to traditional sports reporting journalists looking for anything even vaguely sports-shaped to fill their airtime. These unusual, often YouTube-based leagues are upbeat and colorful, and they're also far enough afield from what the ESPNs of the world typically report upon that they serve as both real-world release valves and unthreatening counterpoints to the typical baseball-basketball-soccer events that come with a lot of emotional baggage and sponsorship-related contractual obligations and limitations. So, at a moment in which the world is confusing and stressful and scary, something different and fun, which doesn't tread upon the exclusivity rights enjoyed by the larger, no longer producing sporting organizations, is exactly what the doctor ordered. Interestingly, esports, which is a term applied to playing video games at a professional level, has been slower on the uptake than one might expect in terms of stepping in to claim market share that has been temporarily ceded. By all these major sporting event cancellations the issue major esport organizations in particular have been facing is that they were trying to shift their focus from their traditional free online routes streaming to devices around the world to having more and more expensive impressive in-person events in part because such events help them establish credibility in part because it demonstrates that they and their offerings are different from all of the free stuff that's available pretty much everywhere online these days, and in part because of all the psychological benefits that come with in-person sporting events. If they can get people to associate those same sorts of tribal, mob-related emotional effects with their products, with professional video games, they'll be able to benefit from many of the same economic outcomes that pro sporting leagues currently enjoy. People buying the shirts and other branded content alongside potentially paying to view some of the matches both offline and online. That shift though and all of the investments associated with it have had to be put on hold for the duration of the COVID-19 pandemic and I suspect those in charge are now rethinking this strategy. In the meantime though, non-pro and semi-pro independent video game streamers are soaking up the majority of the attention that would have otherwise gone to those major e-sport leagues, building many empires for themselves on the backs of easy-to-use and set-up platforms like Twitch and YouTube. Some traditional pro-sporting leagues are also getting in on this action, having their NASCAR drivers, for instance, play co-branded racing video games while their in-person events are not taking place. Such events have mostly been marketing gimmicks so far, but there's some suspicion that these crossovers could become increasingly common and even become another revenue stream in the future as viewers' habits and preferences change due to the normal shift in technology and communication habits, but also as a result of, for instance, the distancing enforced by a pandemic. It's thinkable that they could have professional race car drivers play racing video games instead when they are not able to hold physical events with actual attendees, for whatever reason. Sports and other similar competitive events can help us feel connected, can allow us to put aside our weapons, for a time at least, and can provide us with emotionally engaging entertainment, even when the world is confusing and scary and unpredictable. The specifics of the future of this space are blurry right now, but it's probably a safe bet that made-for-presentation competition of all shapes and sizes will continue to be both popular and significant business opportunities well into the future, regardless of which competition we might be watching and how that competition might be presented to those of us who are watching them. (music) The book that I'd like to recommend today is entitled The Scientist and the Spy A True Story of China, the FBI, and Industrial Espionage by Mara Vistendahl. This book was interesting in part because it, to me at least, showed that a lot of spy stuff is incredibly boring and not immediately recognizable as spy stuff. But at the same time, some of this spy stuff is exactly what you would imagine it to be. And those two sides of the coin are fused together, which can make this sort of thing somewhat confusing to people looking at it from the outside. It's not immediately evident what's going on. Also, interesting is the explanation of how China, in particular, goes about committing industrial espionage, in particular, and how their approach to doing these things conflicts with the way that the United States attempts to do these sorts of things. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Scientist and The Spy by Mara Vistendahl. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode of the podcast and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast at brainlenses.com, and you can find some of my other writing at exilelifestyle.com, and you might consider signing up for my newsletter while you're there as well. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and so on. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.